Brew Strong is brought to you by Blickman Engineering, home of the top-tier brewing stand. Visit them online at BlickmanEngineering.com. Time for the beer radio you've been looking for. This is the show that dispels myths, tackles the toughest topics, and makes no apologies for geeking out on beer. Hosted by two guys that drink before they think, Jamil Zainashev and John Palmer. This is Brew Strong. Hey, howdy, hey, my Bruin brothers and sisters. Greetings, greetings. <laughs> Man, you're sounding way too lecherous. I mean, John's lecherous, but not that lecherous. You want to go for a drive? I have my car here. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about your water. You want to taste my water? It's wet. <laughs> yes, <clears throat> Our lovely John Palmer is uh, not in the studio with us. He's not anywhere. He's down south somewhere uh, at some MBAA meeting talking water. Sounds fake. Sounds it, like an excuse. It is. It's an excuse. He just he's tired of us, I think. He doesn't want to doesn't want to be here anymore. Oh, I have to give a lecture to a room full <laughs> right. of people. Right. People want to hear about this book I've written. Like, oh, yeah, sure. Sure, John. Yeah, yeah. So we're left here to our own, own devices. You're looking sharp in that new Bruce Strong shirt. Uh, am I not? Huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. A fine listener gave this to me. Bought it for me. Because I apparently cannot get one on my own from the Ring Network. No, your money's no good here. But we're also not giving you anything <laughs> right, for free. Right. So I'm not, <laughs> I can't get anything. Right. You won't charge me anything, but that means I don't get anything. So there you go. I'll tell you where you can go. And uh, get some fine stuff. BlickmanEngineering.com. Check them out. They make the uh, top-tier brew system. They make the uh, Tower of Power, the uh, Hop Rocket, uh, the uh, Slammin' Salmon, whatever. They make all sorts of stuff with great names. And uh, the great products, great engineering in them. It's a, a brilliant group of guys that uh, and, and women, I, I assume. Um, <clears throat> all I ever see is guys when we go to these things, so... Well, if there's are if there are chicks, they're making seventy cents on the dollar. Just remember. <laughs> well, maybe I don't know. I think that uh, John's a good guy and uh, probably treats everybody right. Uh, he certainly treats all his customers right. And uh, you know, uh, as I said, great great engineering on great stuff. Uh, a lot of cool stuff you can see on their website. And almost always, when you go to the uh, Homebrewers Conference, they always have a booth there. And when they do, they're usually introducing something really new and cool and unusual. And you get to touchy feely all the uh, all the equipment and all the people. They don't mind if you go up and uh, grope them. I they wonder what they're going to have at uh, Grand Rapids NHC this in uh, 2014. Uh, Something cool, right? Probably. I, I'll definitely go by the booth and say hi to uh, John and his crew. Uh, and if you enjoy the fact that they are paying for the show, so you don't have to go up and say hi to them. Send me an email. Uh, at the very least. Uh, Ask to see some other products at your local homebrew shop. Uh, they only sell through homebrew shops. They don't uh, sell direct to consumers. So uh, go, go check them out there. Very cool. All right. We're doing another Q&A show. Uh, it's, uh, we 
have you guys sending in questions all the time to Bruce Strong at thebrainnetwork.com. So when you do, we don't throw them away. We save them, and uh, we do shows like this to uh, answer as many of those questions as we can. You can also listen live and ask questions through the chat. Uh, yep, I've already got a couple of them, and uh, we'll get to those later. But uh, first, let's start with Sean. Uh, he says, John and Jamil, I want to see if you clowns have the answer to this question. Uh, I'm adding two pounds of Belgian dark candy syrup to my fermenter for my Belgian dark strong. I always use my trusty Mr. Multi-Pitch Calculator, and it works great. But I am not sure with a brew where I add sugars during fermentation if I should size my starter with these sugars in mind or if I should just size it for the gravity of the wort going into the fermenter initially. Thanks a lot for helping out so many home brewers like myself. I just love you clowns. Yeah, one of the things that we talked about um, a number of times is one of your options to ensure that you're getting the maltose which does have a sweetness. We we're talking about sweetness in the in the previous show, uh, and leftover maltose can leave you with a sweet impression on a beer. A lot of the Belgian beers, you want them to taste fairly dry. You want them to ferment out, and you know the sweetness comes from alcohols and things like that. So you get this initial sweetness, and then it's a dry finish. So if you have a lot of maltose in there, it tends to be a sweet finish instead of a dry finish. So you want the yeast to. When, when you add a lot of simple sugars, the yeast tend to just focus on those simple sugars and consume those and then move on to the maltose. And sometimes if the yeast isn't healthy enough, doesn't have enough oxygen, nutrients, things like that, by the time it comes to consume the maltose, eh, they don't really complete the job. So you can start by pitching your yeast first, um, not adding the simple sugars to the beer, uh, let them consume the maltose, and then when it looks like they're finishing up with the maltose, you add in your simple sugar. And this is also how a lot of people get these high alcohol beers by just continuing to add simple sugar and the yeast continue to work on it. Now, the question is, well, since I'm not adding all the sugars as a lower original gravity, should I pitch a different amount of yeast or should I pitch for the entire amount of sugars or for, you know, what is going to be fermented? If you're um, uh, going to ferment for a certain amount of time, you're really pitching for growth. Um, you, you're you pitching for the amount of growth you need because a lot of flavor is developed through the growth of the yeast. You're, and that growth is going to be determined by the sugars present when you pitch and when the growth is occurring. So you would generally pitch for the uh, wort that you're pitching into, sans sugar, and then you add the sugar later on. Sticky point comes when, you know, if you're adding a massive amount of sugar and you really want to get a lot of alcohol in something, then you might start thinking about, you know, pitching more, you know, having more oxygen, getting, you know, making sure you got plenty of healthy yeast to, to really push into the higher alcohols. But generally, you can get away with just pitching um, for the, your lower gravity. You want that. You don't want to put too much yeast in and not develop uh, some of those flavor compounds that are important th- that happen to occur through the growth of the yeast. So you wouldn't want to you wouldn't want to like pitch more yeast when you added that additional sugar. That wouldn't be any good. Um, you could do that. Uh, I think if you were doing you know a massive super high alcohol beer, you know maybe you start off with your flavor pitch of yeast. You know ferment that part out and then as you're adding simple sugars and stuff that maybe you switch over to the super high gravity yeast from white white labs or something like that 
and you know make a start of that and add that with the sugar you know at those times when you're when you're doing that that could certainly certainly help so but but you if you were doing that you would not do that you um, wouldn't add, you wouldn't pitch additional if i was trying to do a super high gravity beer or super high alcohol beer i, I might yeah okay what is super high out like 10 percent type of thing no, or higher no anything once you start going north of 15 percent, oh, then okay. you need to start kind of kind of worrying about it um 15 and below that's pretty pretty normal generally is, is there a <laughs> limit to, to how uh, like how much you can push that ABV? Like you see, if you just keep adding simple sugars and keep adding simple sugars, where are you going to top out? Yeah, people have gotten up into the, you know, twenties, thirties. I think um, some folks are doing. You know, this is an interesting thing. I saw somebody recently talking about making like a thirty or forty percenter, and they were saying, "Oh, they do it through concentrating the beer." You know, essentially distilling, which. Um, you can freeze concentrated beer, but you can't, uh, you know, in the United States, you cannot increase the ABV by more than like, you know, four tenths of a percent, some small amount. So they're doing something totally illegal. I mean, they're, the feds are going to freak out if they're like, yeah, we're concentrating our beer and adding 10 ABV to it. Can't do that. No, no. Highly illegal. So um, you can do it as a home brewer, I would say. It's still illegal, but, you know, you could do that or, you know, something along those lines. But there's a point where it, it, it peters out where the yeast um, really can't can't keep up and can't can't ferment past a certain point. But that, but that point is like in the 30s? It's that high? <sighs> there might be some yeast that can go, yeah. Wow. But, uh, you know, people can get up to in the 20s. All right, next one is from uh, Jed. He says, uh, Jamil, what is the difference between the melanoidin and the aromatic malt you call for in the Belgian Dark Strong recipe in Brewing Classic Styles? Speaking of Belgian Dark Strong, seems like these two descriptors are used somewhat interchangeably, so I'm having a hard time identifying which two malts to use for this recipe. You know, it, it's interesting. Um, a, a lot of these names um, are, you know, products that, could be considered interchangeable, but only as interchangeable as um, different maltsters products can be. Because, uh, all right, so there's a ton of chocolate malt made. Almost every maltster makes a chocolate malt, right? Almost every maltster has a like a black malt or a roasted barley or something like that or a crystal whatever. And you could say, well, here's a Crystal 40, here's another Crystal 40, here's another Crystal 40. Use each one of them, and they're not interchangeable. They don't taste the same. You know, if you get a British Crystal 40 and a domestic, uh, American domestic Crystal 40, and you use them in beers, they're both fine products. They taste different. Same thing on the chocolate malts. I mean, they vary wild, wildly from one maltster to the other. Some some have a 300 level bond chocolate malt. And it's not pale chocolate. This is their chocolate malt. Some have a 600-level bond chocolate malt. It's you know twice as dark. Totally different flavors. But if you go by the name, it's going to be like, well, chocolate malt and chocolate malt. So, melanoidin, aromatic, um, you know, not necessarily interchangeable. Um, but, you know, products that are of a similar nature from different maltsters, well... 
I mean, they're as interchangeable as any malts from any different maltsters that are, you know, they'll taste different. So it's 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 not the crops from where the barley came. It's the way and the maltsters are treating them, or both? It's both. So you can take the same crop of of malt and have two different maltsters do their thing, and they'll taste different. You could take the same maltster and two different crops of grain, you know, or two different strains of, of, of barley, and have them do their same thing on it, and it'll turn out different. Hmm. So the, the maltster tries to take the variance in um, crop years and growing conditions and all these things into account, and they try and minimize the fluctuation in the product. And the better maltsters do a better job of that, and you know they try and keep it very uh, consistent for the brewer. But again, it it changes. I mean, it's you know uh, agricultural product that changes every year. It rains more some years. It's sunny, you know, and the the times when it rains or is sunny is different. So then, how does any large anything maintain consistency of product given the variance? Like, how did how does a a Big Mac in Poughkeepsie taste the same as a Big Mac in Tallahassee? It doesn't. Yeah. It. That's that's the answer. Really? Unless like unless you know you can get uh, you can get you know the same uh, you know materials shipped out to all your locations. You know it's going to vary. Um, you know you go and have a burger in in Europe. Uh, at, you go and have a Big Mac in in Europe, and it's it tastes different. It's definitely you know? different right. overseas. Yeah, and I I think it's different. You know, East Coast West Coast a lot of times. Hmm. Just depends on the on the supply and and you know how it's prepared, how it's handled. Um, the the fact is that most consumers uh, never have the things these items side by side. They'll drink a beer, um, you know, one week, and then two weeks later they'll have another one, the same beer. And they're like, yeah, it's the same, or they'll have it next year, and they're like. Yeah, it's the same. This is how I remember it. You know, but if they were to have the two side by side, they'd be like, oh, wow, it's different. Why is it different? Well, the crop changes. And the brewers try and adjust for that, but still, it's it's very difficult to keep it exactly the same. Yeah, that's one of the single biggest things I've noticed from the uh, the other the Brewing with Style, the other show, is because we, we do so much side by side, you know, mm-hmm. or maybe three, four, five different of the same style. And when you're relying on your memory, yeah, you just... Whatever you have in front of you, you're going to remember, oh, yeah, this tastes just like what I remember. Mm-hmm. But your memory is really not accurate. Oh, memory sucks. Yeah. yeah. And when you have stuff side by side, you, you really do see how much variance there there is. Right. Well, and uh tell you a story about uh, one of the guys that taught me a lot about uh, judging beer and tasting beer and more of the, uh, you know, uh, emotional side of beer. <laughs> this guy, Dave Sapsis. Uh, master BJ, grandmaster BJCP judge, uh, very knowledgeable. Been been around beer for a long time, and and um, he's like like one of those uh, you know Asian kung fu masters that teaches you by asking you questions. Lives on top of a mountain somewhere, yeah, yeah. exactly uh, in Sacramento, and uh, so he would ask me questions about things, and uh, you know never really tell me anything, but you know educate me in this long roundabout way and uh, many years ago i was entering uh, the um washoe zephyr zymergists uh competition up in reno and i i'd go up and judge great group of folks up there and uh loved going up there and doing that and, and i'd go up with dave sapsis 
and we'd ride up and uh, judge. And I had a, a German Pilsner in this one year, and Dave had judged the German Pilsners. And um, in the in the competition, I came. You know, he, he was he was really pulling for it. He didn't know I had one in there, but he was really pulling for it in the best of show round. And um, he's, I think the final comment was, it could be just a, a, a tad drier, and it would be absolutely flawless, you know, fantastic example. So, so it didn't win. And uh, so I remembered that. And the, the next year, I brewed that same beer, and I changed my mash temperature, went a little lower, and I tasted the resulting beer, and I'm like, ah, now that is, that's drier. That's drier than it was last year. Perfect. Perfect. This one's going to be best of show. I went up, entered it, and uh, turned out that Dave, uh, I guess, judged that category, you know, and um, it it won, like, second place or third place. So it didn't go on to best of show. And afterwards, I told her, I said, Dave, you know, you, you, you're an idiot. I said, I had, you know, brewed that beer again. It was drier. It was perfect. You know, why you didn't find that to be a first place beer, you know, I don't know, what's the matter? And his memory, his sense memory is so incredible. He's like, oh, he goes, so that was, that was your beer. And he goes, yeah, I remember the, you know, the third place beer or whatever. And he goes, and I remember your beer from the year before in the best of show. He goes, my sense is that the beer this year was sweeter than the one from a year before. I'm like, what? No, you know, you lost your mind. I said, you don't know what you're talking about. I said, I mashed it lower. It was a drier beer. And he's like, well, okay, I, I must be wrong, you know. And so I went home, happened I had cold stored both those beers. And I had the one from the year before. I tasted them. Or did I taste them side by side? Or I took them over to his place. I'm like, okay, we'll taste them side by side. But damn it, if the guy wasn't a hundred percent right! Wow. So how did that like, happen? Um, it, it's just you know there's all there's a lot of little you know factors into you know why a beer is dry or not and and, and all that and mash temperature is just a very small it has almost no effect on it. So um, uh, you know then that's where I started learning that you know your finishing gravity isn't necessarily an indicator of how sweet something is or dry something is. But uh, I was just stunned that this guy, you know, two beers a year apart, he knew which one was sweeter and which one was drier. Yeah. Isn't that wow. amazing? It is amazing. So there is there is an example of yeah. somebody for whom sensory I, memory is I accurate. tasted the freaking thing. And it's also an indicator of, like, you do something that is supposed to make the beer drier. So when you taste it, you think, oh, it's drier. Yes. And I was completely wrong. Once I taste them side by side, I'm like, yeah, I just don't know what I'm talking about. It's That's the power of expectation. Exactly. Well, and you can expect this. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll answer more of your questions after this. When you hear Blickman Engineering, think innovation, passion, quality, and customer service. Blickman Gear is designed by brewers to give you a sense of pride in your equipment. At Blickman, they know what makes brewing a pain and build gear that makes it fun. Like the Intuitive Beer Gun, a completely different approach to filling bottles. The Therminator Wart Chiller, a new take on a plate chiller that's sized for flow, performance, and the high groundwater temps homebrewers face every day. The Brewmometer, a brilliant weldless thermometer design with brewing parameters right on the dial. 
the auto sparge, ultimate simplicity for preventing an overflow or running your mash tun dry, and much more, like the modular top-tier brewing stand, conical fermenters, and their boiler maker brew pots. With more cutting-edge equipment coming soon, keep up with the latest from Blickman at BlickmanEngineering.com and stay on the cutting edge. Williams Brewing is your online resource for prompt delivery of quality home brewing supplies. Since 1979, Williams Brewing has offered the finest equipment and the freshest ingredients, backed by the best customer service in the business. New items include the Big Oxygen Kit for economical wart aeration using common welding oxygen tanks and the Unistat line of external thermostats for easy control of both electric heaters and refrigerators. In addition, they've just mashed their new oatmeal stout malt extract so you can make those tasty winter oatmeal stouts and porters without mashing. Go to williamsbrewing.com today and browse their vast selection. That's williamsbrewing.com. Orders placed by 4 p.m. Pacific Time weekdays ship the same day. Brewing is easy. The Williams way. Hey, my brewing brothers and sisters, this is Jamel Zanisha, and I love a bold, hoppy beer, one that spits resin in your face and makes you cry, Uncle. There are a lot of great hoppy beers out there, but at Heretic, we want to make something as bold, dank, and resiny as possible. We use hops at every chance we get, including multiple dry hop additions. The result is Heretic Evil Cousin. This light golden, 8% Imperial IPA has an easy malt character that helps take the edge off the massive bittering but it takes a back seat to the in-your-face hop character. We make sure this beer finishes dry so the hops can jump out and slam me in the taste buds. If you can't get enough hoppy goodness, Evil Cousin is your cup of tea. Cheers. Since the first time the Brewing Network microphones turned on, more beer was behind it. More Beer sponsors the programming on the BN because, like you, they love brewing. And like the Brewing Network, they love sharing their knowledge. MoreBeer.com isn't just a website to place your next equipment or ingredient order. MoreBeer.com also gives you access to free beer information that will make you a better brewer. Go to MoreBeer.com and click into the Learning Center. You'll find podcasts, technical facts, video tutorials, and more, including access to The Buzz, more beer social network of more than 5,000 members. And some of them might even be crazier about beer than you are. Get over to morebeer.com today and take advantage of the buzz, the forum, the learning center, and make sure you're signed up to receive the newest More Beer catalog. More Beer, bringing you absolutely everything for beer making. Back to the two guys that know how to turn beer into beer. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. We're doing a live Q&A show. And it's all based off of your questions. Yes, it is. So here is the next one uh, from Ryan from Temecula. He says he has a question about isolating a yeast strain from the air. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you guys be able to talk about the process and techniques of isolating a yeast cell? I would also like to know how you could build that strain and find out what kind of flavors come from this yeast. Uh, then how to relate those flavors to an appropriate style to brew. He's always wanted to isolate a wild yeast 
and he heard us talking about uh, the rogue beard beer. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember that story? Mm-hmm. Kind of disgusting. Anyway, it got Ryan to thinking of how to go about it. Um, yeah, the, there's some information in the yeast book that uh, Chris White and I did. Uh, Google it. Yeah, try, try, try buying a copy of the yeast book, you cheapskate. No, <laughs> um, I think it's a great question. Uh, the, the basic process is, I think that would be like a whole show, really. Now that I think about it. Uh, the basic process is you somehow capture that yeast. It could be uh, you get some wort or appropriate medium and um, set that out, you know, under your apple tree. It's, you know, there's a lot of yeast on fruit and fruit trees. Uh, you put it out in a field. You put it out where, you know, the air, the yeast, and bacteria can all drop into there. And then it starts to grow. And then um, from that, or you, you know, scrape from somebody's beard, or we, you get it from your armpit or from your groin or whatever. Ugh. And then um, you grow that up in, in a, in a, use a, um, use a starter that's, uh, you know, around, you know, 10, 20, you know, something, something like not, not too uh, high a gravity. And uh, you'll get, you get some growth in there. You're going to plate that out, plate the results out. And um, from that, you could pick up individual colonies. Um, you'll see, you know, bacteria. You'll see yeast colonies. You could pick a colony, grow that up into, you could taste your result and see what it tastes like. If it tastes great, then great. Just grow it up as a starter. If it uh, doesn't taste great, then uh, you're going to want to isolate out what's good and what's not. And, um, you know, you plate it out. You can pick individual colonies. You get it down to where uh, things are growing from a single cell. So you have these isolated, pure colonies. You, you pick off one of those colonies. You grow it up again using, uh, you know, small amounts of starter wort and grow that yeast up to something, taste it, see what it uh, tastes and smells like. And if that's a good one, you can go ahead and use that or you can blend several of them together. Uh, that's how it's done. And once once you have isolated which organism organisms you like you can just grow it up like a normal starter and uh, pitch that in your beer all right maybe we'll uh, note that and uh, do a whole show about it yeah i think that would probably uh, be an exciting show all right in the meantime here's one from mike o'keefe in wisconsin jamil thanks for all you do i've been homebrewing about three and a half years uh we're married two kids jeez it's like this guy's life story <laughs> here. Uh, yeah. okay have a question on your rogue flamande what is that? Oh, uh, yeah, Rouge Flamand. It's um, uh, a red cow. Okay. What kind of beer is it? <laughs> uh, uh, like Flanders Red. Ah. Okay. Well, he's got a question about that from the uh, Brewing Classic Styles. He says it's his first sour beer, and uh, he's uh, he's dedicating exclusive plastic to sours, etc. He has committed to the... Uh, the your stance of not using secondaries at all, except for long-aged beers, and he's had success with that. So do you add the oak cubes into the glass fermenter pitch uh, and let it sit for a year? Uh, is there any transfer at any point, or can he just set up with the oak, stash it in the basement, and basically forget about it for a year? Uh, is there any drawback for allowing the oak and the original yeast cake to remain and just let the pellicle form and maybe eventually fall? All right. Um, you can allow some yeast to remain if you go with like a full big on yeast cake 
that can be too much. You're going to get the meaty, brothy, uh, autolyzed yeast character in there, and you don't want that. So a little bit is okay, not a whole massive uh, cake of yeast. As far as the oak goes, I have actually done cubes in uh, a beer for a year, and uh, it didn't turn out um, like overly tannic or harsh or anything like that. It actually turned out okay. Uh, the one worry on the oak is, you know, that you'll get too much oak character if you put too much in there for too long a period of time. So you can, uh, you know, add the oak at a later stage, and uh, that's fine too. So I think uh, either way. What's the longest you've ever let a beer sit in, in like a primary or a secondary, just in a carboy unattended? Um, in a carboy unattended, um, you know, probably. Probably a year. A year. Was it a sour? Um, yeah, I think uh, probably a Flanders Red or, or like a Lambic or something like that. But again, you know, if you get, you've got a, a bunch of yeast in there, it turns real meaty. <laughs> All that, that yeast dies and it, it's not good. So you got to, you know, if there's a little bit, that's fine. But you don't want to, you want to transfer it off of a big cake. And, oh, you know, inside, uh, um, meads. I've done some long-term meads that way. And, again, you got to get it off the yeast because eventually that stuff does die. Is it, does it have to be a sour? I mean, if you're really letting something sit that long, it, it pretty much has to be sour, right? Well, no, you, no, not necessarily. Well, what else would work? What else could um, you do? I mean, you know, if, if no oxygen's going in, you can store anything, you know, for whatever period of time you want. It doesn't have to be carbonated or anything. All right, next one from uh, Mike Billups. Gentlemen, I recently received a uh, small five-gallon barrel from his friend Kevin, who's moving to Japan. Uh, he wanted, he's long wanted to start a sour program. Uh, he's got a handful of five galling glass carboys. What's galling? I don't know. Did he misspell something, maybe? Okay. Well, he's got a handful of five uh, glass carboys. Um, oh, he misspelled gallon. That's what it is. Galling. Uh, he wants to use uh, with the barrel, but he's thinking bigger now. Uh, he's, he likes a uh, Solera-type setup where he pulls two to three gallons of aged beer and blends it with young beer. Uh, to get it going, he's going to brew a simple Belgian blonde, ferment it out, and then rack it to the barrel. Mm-hmm. Since there was a sour beer in the barrel before, uh, but I don't know what it was, I'm sure something will happen. From there, he figures he can pitch something like the uh, Roselaire blend. Uh, or drags from some other great sours. His question is, how often would you suspect uh, he needs to rack off? He figures with enough tasting at regular intervals, he should see trends that he can take advantage of. But it begs another question, which is, how do you uh, work stainless steel nail setup? Just drill the nail, and, just drill and stick the nail in. How does the nail stay in place? So there's like four <laughs> different questions. In there. How do you rack off? How how frequently do you rack off, Scott? Um, well, one, on, one, on the internet, every few access, hours. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. The stainless steel nail thing—you drill a hole into the head end of the the barrel, and then you just hammer the nail in, and then you pull it out with pliers and take your samples that way. And you can just keep putting it back in, and it uh-huh. stays in place. Yeah, yeah. I imagine eventually it might get too big, but I've pulled pulled the nail out and stuffed the nail back into my hole um, many times and uh, I rack uh, off to that no leakage no leakage uh, so so far uh, you know 30 40 times uh, doesn't seem to be a problem I, I guess eventually it, it could be 
But you can get larger size nails and then just hammer in a larger nail, I guess. Um, <clears throat> as far as how frequently do you think you'd be racking off? Um, depends on what, how much character you're looking for. If you're looking for something, you know, with a lot of souring, then, you know, that's going to take longer. The thing about a small barrel is you're getting a lot more oxygen in there and a lot more surface area. So things tend to go much quicker and you can start getting kind of a acetic thing as well. So you got to be careful about that. Um, you know, let, let taste be your guide, but I imagine, you know, every couple of months on a small, real small barrel, you might be uh, needing to rack some off. Um, bigger barrel, you can go quite a bit longer. Uh, bigger the barrel, the longer it can sit without uh, changing very much. What about the uh, residual, there had been sour beer in that right. thing beforehand. What's that going to do? Uh, you know, you know, Brett can work its way into the wood, you know, a quarter inch deep into wood and uh, come back out. So I'm sure there's something in there. I would generally, if it's been sitting dry or had a lot of air access, stuff like that, I would uh, fill it up with uh, hot water and stun everything that's in there and kind of start fresh. I mean, there'll still be plenty of Brett and other stuff in there, but you want to kill any Acetobacter stuff like that that's going to generate a lot of uh vinegar so i would i would just stun it to start and kind of start over what would happen if you um you know he says he's going to brew a a belgian blonde and then ferment it and then rack it to that barrel Mm -hmm. what if he was to not ferment it what if he just put it in the barrel and Mm -hmm. did primary in there as Mm -hmm. well Mm -hmm. what would happen uh you know as long as there's uh yeast for it uh, you know that's essentially how the lambic brewers do it in belgium they will um the authentic lambic brewers they'll inoculate it with the air the yeast comes in uh and then they transfer the barrels and are you know and they'll ferment in the barrels uh you can do that i mean just like any other um fermentation vessel all right good luck mike one more before we take a break this one's from scott james he says uh hey brew gurus he was about to order some White Labs yeast from an online store, and they suggest buying an ice pack to ship it with. Mm-hmm. Uh, this got him to thinking, is an ice pack enough? Uh, he's guessing he says that the package will be in transit for about two days and will have light insulation and one small ice pack taped around it. His guess is that the yeast might get shocked by the cold of being taped to an ice block um, and then warm up over two days to ambient, which might be in the 80s or even 90s, depending on where he's at. That doesn't sound like a nice uh, ride for Daddy's Little Helpers. Is he over-concerned? Should he order the yeast a couple of days before and make his starter? Or, you know, what's the story? Well, this is the thing, you know, I, I love the products that are made by, you know, White Labs and Y-Yeast. I think they make, you know, spectacular products. And when it leaves the the uh, their lab... Um, I think it's, you know, just perfect and wonderful, but this is the thing I keep, you know, harping on is when you get that package of yeast, it's traveled from there to the homebrew shop, from the homebrew shop to you, either mail order or you drove it home or whatever. And, you know, the, the resulting, you know, viability of the yeast is not going to be what, you know, a perfect pitch of yeast and so you always do need to use multiple vials, multiple packs, or make a starter. Uh, you know, it's it's nothing against White Labs or Y-East. They, they make it great. It's just, a, you know, a real natural um, uh, product that 
is going to suffer some loss in transit. So you have to almost always you should be making a starter. You know, it's it's just a, a great way to ensure that before you get to that point where you need yeast, that it's one, it's viable, it's active, all that stuff. If you find that, you know, it, I'm sure it's happened, uh, uh, you know, more than I know, but, you know, somebody's got a, you know, a dead pack of yeast and nothing. You know, better to find that out before you uh, before you brew. He, he finishes the email by asking, you know, maybe it's just worth it for him to drive the 30 miles round trip to his local. Um, but you bring up an interesting point, which is that the yeast was shipped to the homebrew shop too, right? right? Uh-huh. So that doesn't really accomplish anything. Yeah, and it it just depends, um, you know, because they'll they'll they throw ice packs in there when they ship it to the homebrew shop, and you know they can ship it overnight. I don't know, you don't know how quick they shipped it. You don't know. I've I've been to homebrew shops where I see a box of you know packs of yeast laying there on the ground. So everybody's too busy to put them into the fridge, so they sit there all day in the heat of the homebrew shop, and they don't go into the fridge. So you don't know if that happened too. Uh, you know, it's just hard to know for sure. The only way you know for sure is to, you know, make make sure by proofing it, you know, make a uh, a starter with it, and then you're absolutely certain. So always make a starter. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, let's take a short break. When we come back, more of your questions after this. Hi, I'm Jason Harris, the proud owner here at Keystone Homebrew Supply. We're thrilled to be entering our 20th year of supplying this great industry. And to show you, the Brewing Network Army, how much we appreciate your support, we're offering you 10% off your first order on our website, keystonehomebrew.com. Just use coupon code BNARMY at checkout, and I'll get your order out the same day. My goal at Keystone Homebrew Supply has always been to have a complete supply of everything a brewer could want. When you place your order online or when you come into our store, it's our goal to have everything on your list and more. One aspect of KeystoneHomebrew.com that we're really excited about is the ability to fulfill customers' exact grain bills. Do you hate to wait? Keystone Homebrew Supply can get your precious yeast and hops to you within just one day if you live between Connecticut and Virginia and within two days east of the Mississippi. KeystoneHomebrew.com I'm Jason Harris and I approve this message. Ten, huh? Getting tired of that same old handcrafted beverages day after day? Are you looking for something with more diversity than your normal beer? Fellow BN Army member Michael Fairbrother, owner of Moonlight Meadery, is reviving an entire beverage category. Mead! The meads at Moonlight Meadery are all handcrafted from the finest honey on the market and are perfect for any occasion, like weddings, baby showers, or... Excuse me? Mead is not your average girly drink, mister, and Moonlight Meads can be enjoyed anytime, anywhere. Football games with the guys. Yeah. Barbecues with the guys. Yeah. Operating power tools with the guys. Yeah. Um, actually, sir, that's really dangerous. Good point, son. Next time you have something to celebrate or are just looking for a new tasting experience, pick up a bottle of mead from Moonlight Meadery. Now in 21 states, making over 60 varieties of mead from dry, semi-sweet to sweet. Break out of that craft beer low. Grab a bottle of Moonlight Mead. Can't find some? Then ask. No, make that demand some. Yeah! What'd you get? 
more brewing ingredients? Yep. You know what I love about Brewmaster's Warehouse? The $6.99 shipping. Well, yeah, but... Oh, the in-store classes for beginning brewers. Yeah, that's cool, but... Oh, oh, the brew builder. Creating and saving your recipes online is awesome! No, I'm... Yes, but the cheese-making supplies. No. Oh, the wine-making supplies. Oh, the distilling equipment and liquor flavorings. All that stuff is awesome, yes, but what I really love is that the guy who runs it is totally hot. And, and that brew builder software is awesome. Oh, yeah. Brewmaster's Warehouse brings you flat rate shipping on great equipment and ingredients to make beer, wine, cheese, and spirits at brewmasterswarehouse.com. And if you're in Georgia, stop by Brewmaster's Warehouse Monday through Saturday from 10 to 6. Visit brewmasterswarehouse.com today because it's totally hot. Oh, yeah. One of the last things many brewers try to master is the ingredient that makes up most of their beer, water. Brewers Publications is pleased to announce Water, a comprehensive guide for brewers of all levels by how-to-brew author John Palmer and professional brewer Colin Kaminsky. Hi, I'm John Palmer. This book is the result of many years of asking the tough questions about water to professional brewers and brewing scientists, and we are very pleased with how it turned out. It's the first book that is solely about water treatment throughout the brewing process. The book is intended for all brewers, from homebrewers to professionals, and we hope you like it. From how to read a water report to treating your wastewater and everything in between, water is the comprehensive guide you've always wanted on brewing's least understood ingredient. Flavor contributions, water chemistry, and adjusting water to styles of beer. John and Colin will teach you everything you need to know. Water is available from BrewersPublications.com and find brewing booksellers near you. Take the mystery out of your brewing water. Visit BrewersPublications.com for your copy of Water today. Are you a member of the American Homebrewers Association? Well, you should be. Members of the AHA can focus on brewing beer, and the AHA takes care of the rest. The American Homebrewers Association advocates on behalf of homebrewers like you to legalize the hobby in all 50 states and make sure that beer laws make sense. Plus, there are many great benefits that come with your AHA membership, like AHA member deals that give you awesome deals at bars, restaurants, breweries, and more. Zymer G Magazine and E. Zymergy for tons of articles, how-tos, easy-to-follow recipes, and news about the hobby you love, and access to the members-only content on homebrewersassociation.org. But the AHA can't do it without your support. Join today so the American Homebrewers Association can keep fighting for your homebrewing rights. Visit homebrewersassociation.org or join now from the homepage of the Brewing Network website. Relax. Don't worry. It's the American Homebrewers Association. Hi, I'm Jamel Zanishef, and in addition to my work on the Brewing Network, I write the style profile column in every issue of Brew Your Own magazine. Hi, I'm Sean Paxton, and when I'm not prepping for the homebrewed chef on the Brewing Network, you can find me writing articles on how to cook with your homebrew for Brew Your Own magazine. Greetings, cretins. This is John Palmer, and when I'm not writing for Brew Your Own, I'm reading it. John Palmer, Sean Paxton, Jamil Zanishev. If you love listening to them on the Brewing Network, you'll love reading their articles, tips, and recipes in the pages of Brew Your Own magazine. Join Jamil, John, and Sean eight times a year in Brew Your Own. And when you subscribe to BYO on the Brewing Network website, half of your subscription price goes right back to the BN to support great beer and food programming. So sign up for Brew Your Own magazine through the BN website today so you can listen and read. Read your way to better homebrew. Back to your hosts, Jamil Zanashef and John Palmer. 
Putting the testicles in technical. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. Having a lovely afternoon in downtown uh, Martinez. And random people walking through the studio. <laughs> yeah, there's never, there's no off limits, um, no off limits territories for, for people trying to sell something. Right, right. Who, who knows? It just uh, just seems to uh, keep going on. Maybe they just follow you around. Might they, be. They can Might sense be. that you're a business owner and they want to sell me something. Smell it. Yeah. Okay, back to the question. Smell something. Here's uh, from Jed. When brewing a Belgian double, Jamil, do you add the simple sugars and candy syrup uh, at the start of the boil or just before flame out? It's a simple one. Um, you could do you could do either. Um, the one thing to keep in mind is that your hop utilization will change. So if you put all your syrups and stuff and the the specific gravity of the solution goes up, the isomerization of alpha acids and the dissolution of alpha acids into the into the liquid is going to be less than if you were to do all your hot boiling first and then add this at the end. It's interesting that you would say just, well, you can kind of do either one. It seems like there would be a really big difference between for boiling it for an hour or not boiling it. Yeah, you know, until you get to a really syrupy, you know, fairly thick concentration, I think it's been overblown the amount of color contribution and melanoidin form- formation uh, of, you know, a, a, a higher gravity or, you know, of wort. You know, you take um, uh, just a stock Pilsner beer and you boil it for 90 minutes versus 60 minutes. It's really if you correct for volume it's really not uh, a whole lot darker it's um you know pretty much the exact same color it's just concentrating something down it looks a lot darker you add water back to the same volume it's same color so it's really not adding a whole lot of color i think that's again one of those things that's been overblown a little bit uh, through the internet I would think that flavor would be more of a factor than color. I mean, just based on nothing other than just just what it would seem like. Just boiling sugars for an hour seems mm-hmm, like it would affect mm-hmm. flavors a lot. Well, you know, it depends on what it is. And again, how concentrated it is. You boil, you know, a fairly thick concentrate, you're, you're getting a lot more, you know, formation of compounds. Well, something that's, you know, relatively lower gravity, eh, you're going to get some. So it'll change you know how much it changes how significant that is if it's turning out good and you're throwing it in early continue to do that if you throw it in late you know there's it's it's not like it's going to be better one way or the other it'll be different is it necessarily better or worse one time or the other well you know try try one way and then try the other and see what what you think i mean you know it does change it like you're saying but yeah okay next one from eric uh, hey guys, enjoy the podcast. Uh, I understand from the podcast that there are at least uh, at least part of the idea behind double dry hopping is that the dry hops pile up and limit beer contact with the hops at the bottom of the pile. I am thinking that a relatively small amount of dry hops would not form such a thick coat on the bottom of the fermenter mm-hmm. and might not justify the extra step and potential risks of contamination and oxygen exposure. Uh, assuming that makes sense, here's my question: What amount of dry hopping justifies double dry hopping? 
like an ounce in a five gallon batch, two ounces, four ounces, assuming pellet hops. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's going to vary depending on your fermenter. Um, you know, so you really have to kind of answer it for yourself. Uh, you know, brew the same beer, try whatever amount, you know, in one edition, try it in two editions, see, see what the difference is. You know, it's it's like you're saying, that surface area, if you have a, a broad, flat, you know, bucket or carboy and you're throwing in an ounce, I don't think trouble dry hopping is necessarily worth it, probably. If you're throwing in eight ounces in a, a conical or a corny keg or something like that, yeah, then it's going to stack up. I think you're going to, you should probably be doing, uh, you know, the double thing. Okay, well, here that he has, he does have a follow up question. Speaking about the uh, the vessel, does it depend on the geometry of the vessel? Mm-hmm. Uh, the cross sectional area of a corny keg is much smaller than that of a five gallon carboy, uh, and there is even quite a large difference between the area of a six and a half gallon carboy and a five gallon mm-hmm. uh, bucket or carboy about one point four times. Uh, might uh, might be another justification to skip secondary and just dry hop in primary, or a reason to increase dry hop quantities when dry hopping in a keg. Exactly. There you go. To answer his own question. Yes. All righty. Here is from Jason. Jason says he just finished listening to uh, your uh, the aeration show, and he had a question that wasn't covered. Do you think that the inline aeration with a diffusion stone and oxygen is as good as a diffusion stone straight into the wort after transfer from the kettle? Uh, you know, assuming that um, you know, you're running it... Um, in line um, the same amount of time and same amount of flow rate as if you're sticking a wand into a carboy and doing that I would imagine the inline should produce better uh, oxygen levels than um, you know just a wand in a carboy because you're going to get a lot more contact time I would think alright from next one Dan Dan Merich Hi, Jamil and John. Nice meeting you both at NHC during the book signing in Philly and throughout the conference. Uh, his question is, when allowing the fermentation temps to slowly rise, as you suggest, what do you recommend uh, for us that have temperature-controlled environments to do and how? Well, um, control your temperatures and let it rise. I'm not sure what that question is. <laughs> I know I picked that question to be on the show, but I'm not quite sure now that i hear it that i fully understand it well okay so so what's the most common temperature controlled environment just like a a chest freezer with a temperature controller uh yeah chest freezer refrigerator something like that or in a cold environment putting a heat wrap and you know going up versus down okay so i think like maybe he means do 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 you dial up the the temperature controller a degree a day or you know maybe Uh, maybe that's what he's right right um yeah you know, it depends on the beer, but generally what I always recommend is, you know, do your uh, your pitch and your yeast growth phase at, a, at whatever given temperature. And then once it's through that phase, go ahead and start raising the temperature. You can either you know, leave it at that temperature towards the end and then bump it up, you know, quite a few degrees for like a diacetyl rest or something like that. Or, you know, you can just every day add a degree or every two days add a degree. What I would look at is, you know, where you're starting, where you're, you're target finishing. And some some beers, you're going to finish at a higher temperature. Some, you're, you're just looking for a couple of degrees. 
and just divide it up amongst the number of days of fermentation you think are going to be there, you know, five days or whatever it would be, and just take one-fifth of that. And So sometimes it's, you know, raising the temperature a degree a day. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, it looks like fermentation is starting to slow, and then throw a degree on is what I will do sometimes if I'm, you know, especially a beer where I don't really know where I'm going. It just looks like it's slowing down. I don't want it to slow down. I want it to finish attenuate fully and be as dry as possible then i'll you know keep chasing the temperature keep keep bumping that thing keep it active and that's the important part what about for for warmer fermentations is that the same rule of thumb applies is you want to keep ratcheting that temperature up yeah you're almost always going up i mean you don't want to go down necessarily um because when you go down the yeast become less active and they're more likely to drop out of solution and not complete as much of the tasks as you want them to do you almost always want to go on a rising temperature. Almost um, always. So, what's the exception? I can't think of any right now. <laughs> you know, you, you you're always going up at the end of fermentation. If you're trying to do tr- true lagering where the yeast remain active, then you very slowly lower the temperature there. Um, that could be one thing. You don't want to go below forty degrees Fahrenheit. You don't want to quickly lower the temperature. You very slowly ratchet it down. That could be one one scenario. Uh, other other than that, you always want to be rising. So let's say you're slowly ratcheting down the temperature and you do it too much and the yeast does fall out of solution. Bringing the temperature back up won't won't reverse that. Well, it once it's once it's out, it's out. Um. Yeah. Chances are, especially once there's alcohol in there and uh, you've uh, fermented out most of the sugars, the yeast won't get started again. They pretty much will just give up at that point. You're you kind of hosed yourself. That's why you don't want temperature swinging up and down. You want to keep it steady and either completely steady or or slightly rising at all times. Okay, let's see if we can get more. A couple quick before the break uh, from Christian in St. Louis. Hello, crew. He has two questions about yeast harvesting and bottle fermenting. Uh, if he harvests yeast slurry from a lagered beer to repitch, would the age of the yeast start when it's harvested or once it's done fermenting? Uh, are there negative effects to harvesting a yeast cake from a beer that is lagered for two to four weeks or has uh, autolysis started by then? Autolysis? Autolysis? What is that? Uh, it's uh, the breakdown of yeast. They start to kind of consume themselves okay. uh, in trying to survive. Um the yeah, and we had this kind of a similar question in the previous show where um, talking about you know what's the viability of yeast as as the sits on a, a yeast cake sits under beer for a, a number of weeks and it starts to drop you know it might be you know five percent drop a week something like that depending you know if you're lagering this thing cold then you know it could be could be fine. Um, uh, <clears throat> what was the question again? Uh, <laughs> uh, so the, there was really two questions. Yeah. He, if he harvests yeast slurry from a uh, lagered beer to repitch, would the age of the yeast start when it's harvested or once it's done fermenting? Generally, you go with when it's harvested. Um, but if you're leaving it a long period of time, then, you know, generally a few days after fermentation is totally complete, the yeast dropped out and you give it like another day, then that's about the the highest vit- uh, vitality and uh, viability you're going to get. 
Okay, and just to, to round this out, he says, uh, if you could briefly go over pitching fresh yeast to a lagered beer when bottle-to-bottle ferment. Bottle, bottling to bottle ferment, sorry. Uh, he said he heard a rule of thumb is 10% of the original pitch amount, uh, but can you use less? Mm-hmm. No, nah, you use like um, uh, a million cells per mil. Um, so in a 20... Uh, liter batch you're going to use uh, 20 billion cells so in f- five gallons of beer you're looking at 20 billion it's a one-fifth of a about one-fifth of a white labs or a white yeast pack you use an activator pack using a lot more yeast than that really you end up with too much yeast sediment so the rate of you know uh, 20 billion to 20 liters is pretty much the rate that uh, Sierra Nevada uses they filter out their yeast and then they pitch again at that rate and that gives you a nice dusting across the bottom it's plenty for carbonation so that would be your your rule of thumb okay we got some questions from the chat for uh for the last segment let's do this let's take a short break when we come back we'll wrap up with some questions from the chat after this BN Army, Hop Tech has a great discount waiting for you. Do you often find it difficult to find specific specialty ingredients for your homebrew recipes? Well, listen to this. Hop Tech stocks 59 different grains to choose from, 39 varieties of pellet hops, and 8 kinds of whole leaf hops. And Hop Tech not only carries Y yeast and White Labs yeast for you, but also Fermentus, 04, 5, 6, 23, 33, and T58 Belgian yeast, plus Cooper's Nottingham and Windsor yeasts. Got your recipe ready to go? Pick up some great brew gear like new long and short sleeve shirts, games, and more. HopTech's new website is being updated every day with new items. If you don't see it, call the shop. They're open six days a week. BN Army and AHA members get a 10% discount, and active military personnel get 15% off. Visit HopTech.com today for great selection, great service, and a great discount. HopTech.com. That's it. I've had it. I am never putting hops in my beer again. What? Why? It's just too ridiculous. Insane prices, stupid contracts, high shipping costs, crappy selection. Dude, you need Nico Brew. Nico Brew will rock your f***ing face right the f*** off your f***ing skull. $5 shipping to all 50 states, plus fantastic international rates get you low prices on Nico Brew's great selection of hops and more. Whether you're a home brewer, a pro brewer, or a home brew shop owner, Nico Brew can get you the hops you need in increments big and small, single orders, spot buys, or full contracts. And there's only one place to join the uber special secret elite bare bones club where you'll get the best deals anywhere. Holy shit! NicoBrew.com. N I K O B R E W. Nico Brew, your bare bones buddy in the brewing business. Tonight is the night. We bring the creature to life, Dr. Blitzenstein? Yes, J.P. Gore. Everything is perfect for my next fermented creation. My daughter, the storm is too far away. We'll never have enough power to isomerize the creature's alpha acid. <laughs> yes, J.P. Gore, we will. For I have in my possession the Tower of Power! 
Glickman's new Tower of Power is the evolution of automation. Control hot liquor, sparge, and mash temps like a pro. The Tower of Power is a high-quality gas-fired rim system that works with your current brewing setup. With ultra-precision, the tower can hold your mash to one-half of a degree Fahrenheit. Precision and repeatability. The Tower of Power is the answer to automatic, fast ramp times. See more at BlickmanEngineering.com. Bring your next creation to life with the Tower of Power. Dr. Blickman's with the Tower of Power. You can probably give me an afternoon at the pub to enjoy a fight. Don't be silly, J.P. Gore. We have beer to brew. When I order a beer, I want my server to know more about it than I do. I want someone who enjoys good beer and loves helping others enjoy it, too. I want someone who knows how to pour a perfect pint for any beer style. I want a Cicerone. The Cicerone certification program is creating the type of people who help you enjoy great beer. Home brewers and craft beer lovers know beer is more flavorful and complex than ever, and it takes some serious knowledge to store and serve beer right. Cicerones, no beer. There are three levels in the Cicerone program. Certified Beer Server, Certified Cicerone, and Master Cicerone. Cicerones are truly the sommeliers of beer. The best beer locations have a certified Cicerone on staff. Relaxed and unpretentious, Cicerones are tested on storing and serving beer, beer styles, flavor and tasting, the brewing process and ingredients, and pairing food with beer. Learn more about your next beer guide at Cicerone.org. Certified Cicerone, because it takes top talent to present a perfect pint. All right, BN Army, it's trivia time. What's the only homebrew shop with over 1,000 recipe kits, $4.99 shipping on orders over 100 bucks, and is also home of the Wolf Shirt? The one and only answer is Austin Homebrew Supply. For over 20 years, they've specialized in creating recipes such as the best-selling Texas Blonde Ale, Apocalypso, Hot Bomb 2.0, and Double Chocolate Stout. And they just recently unveiled their small grain kits that produce one gallon of beer. Visit AustinHomebrew.com to browse their extensive catalog of equipment and ingredients. They also have many clone recipes of your favorite commercial beers. They're the exclusive retailer of Brew Vent Yeast Fuel as well, Yeast Nutrient, and the all-new Bodybuilder. Follow Austin Homebrew Supply on Google Plus to participate in video hangouts on popular brewing topics. So visit AustinHomebrew.com today and make sure you sign up for their weekly email with news and specials. Austin Homebrew Supply, AustinHomebrew.com. To the beer guys that make other beer guys look like wine guys. Brew strong. All right, we're going to wrap up here. Live QA show. And speaking of wrapping up, a couple of those folks at adamandeve.com. Oh, that was good. Wrapping up. <laughs> Got to wrap it. I'm sure, I'm sure they. Uh, you know, you buy yourself a giant dildo, they wrap that thing up for you. I bet you, do they have a gift option? I haven't checked. Do they have like a, you know, birthday present option? Good question. I'm. They probably do. You know, uh, like a congratulations on your your latest victory at Ninkasi, you dick. And then you send, you know, the guy uh, like a giant dildo uh, wrapped up as a present. Yeah, maybe. Can you check not discreet shipping? Please be obvious as to what this is. Just strap it to the outside of a piece of paper and ship it to this guy. Or just stamp his name on it and a stamp and send it through the mail. Adam and Eve can do anything. I'm sure it can. I'm sure it's possible. They do all sorts of great stuff there. They get uh, thousands and thousands of products at reasonable prices. And if you use the offer code Jamil, J-A-M-I-L, they're going to sell you one of those things for 50% off. 
And when you buy an item at 50% off, you get uh, three free adult DVDs. You get to choose from all sorts of categories like Asian am- Amateur, Anal, MILF, uh, Big Boobs, Big Butts. Um, you name it, they got it. You name it, they got it. That sounds like a very kinky category. You, the you <laughs> name it, you got it category. And uh, you get the three free DVDs, and then you're going to get a free extra gift. So central, I can't mention it on the air. It's some sort of anal lube or something. I don't know. And then uh, you're going to get free shipping on top of that. So buy one item, half off. You get three free DVDs. You get a free extra gift. You get free shipping, all for using offer code uh, J-A-M-I-L, Jamel. You gotta love how you gotta love how open uh, chicks are these days. To I mean, you've been married for a while, so maybe you you don't know. But now, like, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I can't know. imagine that you could just sort of order something from a place like Adam and Eve, you know, in in the '60s, and then just like right, give it to right. your girlfriend and have them not be like wildly offended. Now they're like they're stoked. Yeah, back back even you know not even the '60s, like 20 years ago. Yeah. You'd be looked at as a real perv yeah, exactly, for yeah. buying, buying uh, you know, dildos and lube and stuff like that, you know, on the internet, and uh, you know. Now you're just a generous a guy. Yeah, and you're just like, oh well, you want to have some fun. Yeah, that's kind of cool. I'm you know? fun loving. Yeah, you just you just want to have a good time, and to, you know, shove this inside you. Right. Dear. Yeah, you're not uptight, are you? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's do a few more questions from the chat before we wrap it up. Um, from guest one five three four nine six two said he just brewed a Flanders Red from the Burn Classic Styles. Another Flanders Red question. He fermented with Cal Ale down mm-hmm. to ten twenty two. Mm-hmm. Racked to another carboy. Pitched the Roselaire blend. Mm-hmm. He said, "Does he leave it in the carboy for a year? Just kind of leave yeah. it, or does he leave it for a shorter amount of time and then rack to a keg?" Um, you know, if you've racked it off that primary yeast, that Cal Ale yeast, and you pitch the Roselaire, uh, you pretty much leave it for the entire year now this is where i go from a bigger carboy down to like a five gallon so that the you know your oxygen pickup is is not too much and then uh just let it sit um you know around 65 to 68 degrees for a year carboy cap on it throw some oak in there when should he add that oak uh you can add it uh early on and then rack it off or you could uh uh you know throw it in the last you know, six months, four months. It depends how much you throw in. Okay, this one is from NC Photog. He said he heard Jamil say that yeast harvested and used for a second time, and then a third brew uh, tends to really ferment with more vigor than first-generation yeast. Could making a multi-step yeast starter instead of a large single-step one in any way mimic this? Yeah, I don't really think so. It tends to be more... Uh, you know, I, I, one it's it's volume of yeast that you're getting, and also just um, you know, almost the regular repetition and um, the environment of your beers that tend to do it. I think versus just a starter. Uh, you know, and starters are they're very effective. It's just um, you know, it seems somewhat different when you're when you're doing full pitches and you're growing the whole thing, and the whole pitch is is there. Okay, here's a quick one from uh, the same guest. Uh, he said, does boil-off affect hop utilization and bitterness? Uh, sure. Um, you know, as as the, you know, if you're boiling off quite a lot um, and the, the, you know, the gravity of the wort is concentrating, then, yeah, you'll, you're getting less utilization as the, the gravity goes up. Um you know, on the other hand, if you're getting 
you know, a good vigorous boil, but not really losing a lot of volume very quickly, you might get uh, slightly more utilization. Um, and then just concentrating down the liquid, the hops, uh, the isomerized alpha acids are remaining in there. And as you boil off water, they're, it, they're getting more concentrated. So those, all those factors have some sort of play into what your final IBUs will be. What affects it, how much is being boiled off? Just how high you have the flame? Yeah, you know, a variety of things. Um, environmental factors, like you get a breeze blowing through. It's a dry day, and there's a slight breeze coming through. You're going to evaporate a lot more uh, liquid off of that, given the same vigor of boil. If you're, you know, the configuration of your pots, you know, if it's a wider surface or a narrower surface, that's going to affect it. Um, you know, if it's a hot, humid day, you know, it's real muggy, you know, you, it, you're not going to evaporate as much. Okay, one final one from uh, from NC Photog once more. He said he recently had a double IPA uh, best of show, scored 46. He said he was very pleased with that. Uh, the only negative from both judges, uh, they both noted a slight plastic taste around the edges, he says. Uh, obviously, it was a slight off flavor, else the score would have been uh, ding much more so uh, he's wondering uh, if because he filters his water he says and he doesn't think chlorine is a culprit mm-hmm. and um, he's read that that could be a possible cause of the plastic taste he used uh, 14 ounces of pellet hops for a five gallon batch I asked him what he used because you thought it might be variety he mm-hmm. used six ounces of Columbus five ounces of Simcoe three ounces of Centennial what do you think that could be from yeah I think you know like the uh, brewcaster challenge that was you know kind of a petroleum kind of character coming through from you know certain hops you know too much when you use an intense amount of certain hops you can get some some, uh plasticky kind of character going on um you know the other thing is if it's just two judges they're hunting for stuff they're trying to find some reason that it's not perfect and so they're they're putting down anything that they can find because they're afraid to put down you know it's perfect uh, you know everything tastes perfect and then oh i got to give it a 50 you know so they come up with some sort of imagined flaw sometimes to say well why that's why it's not 50 it's 46 so that that can be the case the other issue is yeah intense hoppiness can sometimes come off as phenolic or plasticky so i wouldn't worry about it yeah best to show you got 46 points that's about as good as you're gonna do yeah i mean you know i wonder if that's that's definitely speaks to sort of human nature, right? Is that if you you were looking for flaws, you will find them, even yep. in something that's perfect. You will imagine them, absolutely. Yeah, people are afraid to just declare something's perfect, and that's one of my pet peeves. It's like if you're tasting a beer and it seems like it's perfect, then just say it's perfect. Just say it's fifty points. Don't don't worry about it. Don't worry about what the flaws are. Just say, wow, this is fantastic, and enjoy it. You know, that's a great experience, and it happens, and people just don't realize that it's happening. You know, they're tuned to say why it's not happening. So, I think the same could sad. apply to um, your, your your girlfriends, you know, like it, yep. opposite sex. Like, yeah, you know, it, don't, don't look for reasons that it's not perfect. Just, right, uh, right. you know, looks enjoy. good, enjoy. People, you know, they go out to the supermodel, you know, hot, and supermodel brain surgeon, whatever, and... There's some sort of flaw. Yes, yeah. actually, <laughs> There's my, something wrong. One of my favorite bumper stickers I ever saw is: um, um, "No matter how good she looks, some guy somewhere is tired <laughs> of her shit." Yeah, exactly. There you go.
Yeah, same same for for judges and, and Bruin. All right, thanks to the chat room for the questions. Yeah, thanks everybody for listening. Thanks for uh, another great show. Uh, we enjoy doing these shows, and uh, we enjoy having you listen. And we enjoy meeting you at events and things like that. So uh, don't hesitate to, to come by and say hi when you see us. If you like this show and want to keep seeing it, uh, check out the uh, Brewery Network store. Lots of goodies there. There's uh, books and hats and shirts and the hoodies and growlers and all sorts of stuff that you can get. And when you do, all the profit of that goes to the bottom line of the Brewery Network and helps uh, keep these things going, keeps the lights on, pays for all the studio equipment and everything. So uh, if you like it, make sure you're, you're supporting that. Check out our fine sponsors, adamandeve.com, Blickman Engineering. Uh, check out all the, the fine uh, equipment both places have. Till then, Bruce Strong, everybody. Bruce Strong. Bruce Strong.